everybody. Uh, and I've been looking forward to this panel, uh, not just because I'm hosting it, because it's about one of my favorite uh, subjects, DeFi. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's dig right into it because we've got plenty to talk about and only about 30 minutes. Uh, so if we could real quick, um, we'll just go around, give, you know, name, uh, company, and just, you know, a little, little, little bit about the company. Uh, perhaps we can start with uh, Jerome. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, Jerome Forey, CEO at Immersive. We developed the world's first decentralized payment card. Uh, we enabled Web3 wallets to transact everywhere. MasterCard's accepted under both custodial and non-custodial use cases. And one of the things we're excited about as far as the product roadmap is doing a, a DeFi credit card. So I'm keen to have a chat about that at some point. Very good. Paul, want to hop in? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Paul Ferguson. I'm a co-founder of a company called Azteco, and we um, we provide an easy way for people to access Bitcoin. You can walk into like a retail store or buy from a number of our online retailers. What's like a gift card for low value denomination amounts of Bitcoin that can be topped up directly to your phone. So just like you're topping up your mobile phone, now you can top up your phone with little bits of Bitcoin. And so I have a long history of technology and product development, and uh, spent six years at Google as a product manager before founding Azteco. Very cool. Stefan? Oh, you're muted, by the way. Oh, Stefan. There you go. Yep. Got it, got it. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Uh, nice to be here. Nice. Uh, uh, thanks for the invitation, and look forward to this panel. Yeah, I'm the founder of Trueflation. I think the name says it all. Uh, we calculate inflation. We started off building this index, aggregating 18 million price feeds in real time, and then putting that out there. Um, but really, what we've been working on in the background during the bear market um, has really been, or the deep winter, 700 days of winter, has really been building out this data protocol that is really allowing us to unlock the value of real-world assets. Um, and we're excited to bring that to market and working with various different providers to actually unlock this huge potential of you know, billions and trillions of dollars. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you very much. All right. Well, let's uh, let's dig right into it. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about was something that's always sort of been the, you know, the golden city on the hill for DeFi. And it's finally starting to, to appear as a reality. Uh, DeFi, for, you know, DeFi and TradFi in some ways connecting, you know, it's been a uh, well over a decade uh, of, of crypto, but we are finally starting to, starting to see the very beginnings of some players dipping their toes in. And I was wondering over, you know, this coming 2024, uh, what, your, what your thoughts were on where we might see those uh, applications, where, whether it's, you know, uh, a bank offering, a, you know, stable coin like yields or, uh, or something else entirely. Um, Let's uh, let's start with uh, Stefan. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. We straddle that exactly between the fint, you know, sort of fintwit, if you will, and then crypto Twitter, and they're very different communities, um, and they're polar opposites, really. I think with the you know entry of ETFs, uh, BlackRock into this space, 
you're seeing tokenized T-bills come into the market. There's been a lot of sort of noise about RWAs, and ultimately that's opened the door, I think, or provided a greater set of credibility for institutions to enter or TradFi to enter into crypto. This, And they're still not comfy with the word crypto. They really like um, you know, blockchain, it's a cool yeah. technology, right? We're okay with the technology, but we don't like these currencies uh, because they're still all for scammers and and, and, and bad guys. Um, but anyway, that's sort of the world. Um, and I think there's still a large constituent in crypto or people building in the blockchain world that is also sort of how do we keep the right side happy that is really on the TradFi you know, world um, that is sort of very legal. We've got lots of money sitting over there, quadrillions of dollars, as Sergey calls it from Chainlink. Or how do we go into this DJ and democratizing, building new systems, open limitless markets, making it available for everybody? Um, you know, we're still, all of us are still sort of in this nebulous gray zone um, and obviously, there are all you know participants building in on the polar ends of of that sort of middle ground. Um, you know, so it's 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 an interesting time. Twenty twenty four, we'll carve it out. And I I sort of yeah. Sometimes I believe you know on the one hand you know we've gone too far. Decentralization's just going. It's going to happen. And and the DGENs are going to rule the world. And we're going to see whole new systems come out of the ground. And then on the flip side. You know, there are other days where you then see, you know, choke point 2.0s just killed everything. Yeah. Every hope has been wound down. Lawyers are coming in. Elizabeth Warren slamming some new regulation. Yellen going out on stage and, and talking at Congress, you know, sort of how we should regulate everything. Um, so it's it, it sort of it has its days. Um, but there's definitely the rest of the world and there's Washington. And I think that's that's really Washington's still flexing its muscle, and the closer you are to Washington, the more that's happening. But the big thing is 75% of developers are now outside the U.S. in blockchain. Mm. So that's Electric Capital just did their study. And so that means intellectual capital is moving offshore, um, which is sad to see. That uh, that electric capital uh, DeFi report, by the yep. way, if anyone doesn't read it religiously every year, I swear some of the best insights uh, you could possibly find and, and great uh, forethought. Jerome, uh, I'm, I'm interested specifically in, uh, in in the same thing, but what but in terms of like of consumer side facing things like do you see, you know, in the next year, two, five, ten years? some sort of version of uh, of like an institutional DeFi that actually touches the customer? Yeah, look, I, I think a couple of things, and we're in an interesting space. So we're a principal member of the MasterCard network, which is the same as the, the major banks. So we can sponsor, you know, Web3 companies in, into the network. And we're also a regulated entity. So we need to get approval by local governments to, to operate and to provide, you know, payment services for what we call digital currencies, um, because crypto can be um, a little bit interesting. And then you try and bridge the, the two together. And I think what consumers um, align with are the values of Web3. Uh, so I think, you know, decentralization, self-sovereignty of identity, data, assets, you know, definitely putting control and power into the consumer's hands. What I think we're going to see more of is, I believe every individual in, at some point in the next sort of 20 years in the world is going to have some sort of Web3 wallet. So at the moment, 
I think there's around 80 million Web3 wallets out there, or at least wallet addresses. You know, how many of those are active? Probably a different story. Um, and they're growing at about 30% per annum. Um, now, if we say that's you know based on eight million people, eight billion people, sorry, in, in the in the world, you're going to probably have you know hundred x growth in Web3 wallets. And I think that's going to be the interface for a bunch of of consumers. And I think things like account abstraction are really making the user experience a lot more elegant and easy so that mainstream people can onboard into the Web3 ecosystem and participate with DeFi protocols. I think also, just generally speaking, the banks are not innovating and are struggling to remain relevant with consumers. And what we're going to start seeing is people starting to get paid in crypto and that will go into their Web3 wallet. They're going to be able to then borrow um, or earn yield or interest with that, that crypto. And then if there's a bridge, and so if you see the logo on the back of my background here, that's a Bifrost bridge. You know, we wanted to bridge and bring the best of Web3 and Web2 together. If there's a high-speed bridge to be able to transact in real life, then, then why do you need a bank? You know, if you're getting better yield, better return, it's all digital first, um, then I think that's going to drive a whole bunch of consumer adoption. But I do think that that interface will be the Web3 wallet. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And Hopefully we'll see the, you know, the, the end of uh, savings accounts with uh, sub 1% uh, uh, yields. 100%. Uh, sort of tangential to this, uh, Paul, I'm interested in the idea of, you know, so bridging DeFi and TradFi is one thing, but there's sort of a middle ground, a first step maybe, of bridging DeFi with crypto that's not necessarily DeFi friendly, um, especially, you know, obviously the... The not the OG of all of of the cryptos, not necessarily the first one, but of course Bitcoin. Uh, we're just now starting starting to see layer twos with smart contract functionality. We're seeing very very interesting and I suppose we should say unique uh, token uh, uh, token standards on Bitcoin with the uh, with the inscriptions and the Sedgwick uh, uh, update. Um, I'm wondering what you think we will see, or rather, what do you think that will be the catalyst that will get that? God, is it is it? It's still over a, a well over a trillion uh, uh, in market cap. When are we going to see that hit a DeFi market? Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I think so. Just kind of high level, I think you know, Bitcoin is like the future of decentralized finance in general, from my perspective. And like, we're we're a Bitcoin. We're very focused on Bitcoin specifically at Azteco, and everything we do is kind of to promote and build on um, Bitcoin and make it accessible. But I think like Stefan touched on a very important point, which is the ETFs that just were mm-hmm. approved. That is like the big. Um, integration between DeFi and TradFi today, traditional finance and decentralized finance, right? Mm. This There's like trillions of dollars and millions of people that are not comfortable in this entire space because it's confusing or uncomfortable. People don't want to hold their own keys. Like that's a very scary concept for most people. And people in Bitcoin and crypto have been trying to get these ETFs approved for a very long time. So it's been a very long road to get to this point. And they were finally just approved because um, Grayscale won a court case, basically. Otherwise, they probably still would not be approved. But this is like a major, major moment. And these ETFs are going to like really open the floodgates over a long period of time for people to come from traditional finance into Bitcoin and start to get exposure. And not only do they just get exposure, but I mean, they're actually owning Bitcoin. Like you're owning an ETF, which is basically like a stock in your brokerage account. But uh, in in the back, it is real Bitcoin that you actually have ownership of. And that's going to open up additional products like derivatives. You can 
buy and sell options, write call options. There's going to be income generating techniques that can be created off of this. So all the different traditional finance things that you're used to are going to become available. There's even like a new product called the Roundhill YBTC Covered Call Strategy ETF, which is already promising 33% yields. And so they're going to sell covered calls for you in the background, which caps your upside, right? So if Bitcoin goes on a big tear, you don't get to participate all the way up, but you still get like this yield. So that's going to be a very popular product, not really available today, but it's coming very, very soon. So these are some of the things I'm I'm excited about. And like you said, on, on layer two, Lightning, they have lots of um, interesting things they can do, like algorithmically program stable coins. I, I, there's these different kind of techniques. Um, it's not clear if they're going to work. Like a lot of this stuff is very complicated and has yet to be proven. All the stable coins that we've seen so far have like pretty much failed for one reason or another, other than, you know, Tether is still, still around. Um, but the algorithmically ones, generated ones, mm. those ones have some some challenges. But uh, yeah, I think the ETFs are the are the big the big deal that in uh, traditional finance and, and DeFi today. Interesting, interesting. And definitely a whole new class of, you know, Bitcoin holder and investor, you know, it opens the door to tons of institutions. So it's interesting to think of as Bitcoin is sort of the, you know, the bridge that marries these two disparate areas. They can sort of they are already sort of, you know, sort of sort of touching each other through Bitcoin. Very interesting. Um, I wanted to definitely ask uh, a, a, about one of you know the hottest topics in Bitcoins right now and sort of partially in TradFi, which is uh, real-world asset tokenization. Uh, I'm wondering uh, specifically uh, what we will, uh, like the kind of assets that we will be seeing uh, tokenized in the next couple of years because there's only a few of them tokenized so far. Uh, but Stefan, let me throw this to you because it's very closely tied to uh, Truflation. What do you think we're going to see? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of desire among decentralized exchanges to really build out 24-7 trading capabilities for commodities perpetuals, right? And so how do we enable that? How do we allow individuals to participate in the price of uranium, which is now up, you know, sort of 3x from last year? Um, uh, as in the beginning of last year, not the end of last year. Um, uh, frozen orange juice that went up twice, two times last year, things like that. How do we allow individuals and open up that marketplace for individuals to participate? And they're opening up, not in necessarily in the form of, of taking real world physical uranium, putting it in a warehouse, having that sort of bonded and, and attestation for that. But it's actually happening more in the form of synthetics. Uh, you're seeing that in terms of real estate, where companies are now building out synthetic collateralized real estate prices uh, in New York, Austin, Paris, London. Um, and so that it then becomes tradable. Why is that so interesting? Because it allows the next generation to get onto a ladder where they can start to grow wealth. Um, and you know, and that's what I think is really interesting and exciting. And that's where I think the velocity of RWA tokenization will just drive and pull the real world asset tokenization in terms of the physical form. It will pull it along and just pull it into that direction. Interesting. Interesting. It'll be a, a very interesting space to watch for the uh, for the Definitely. next couple of years. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, sort of this mass adoption, uh, adoption outside of the USA, which I believe we touched on a little bit more, uh, 
is you know constantly going up it's almost sort of a brain drain kind of situation because america is very resistant to it right now um and i was wondering about the uh, uh actually i wanted to throw this to jerome uh the interest in some in in using cryptocurrency as a regular currency as a form of you know payment and transfer outside of america and especially in markets where maybe their traditional you know their their state currency their fiat is not uh not not uh, as usable yeah so in should we say the, the the western kind of countries that we operate in what we typically see is that give or take 10 percent of the population own a digital asset and you would say 65 percent give or take hold btc 30 percent eth and the rest alts and and stables pretty pretty low um in Africa, which has the highest adoption, led by Nigeria, with 49% of the um, country holding digital assets, they're actually more inclined to hold stable coins as opposed to BTC. Um, and particularly Tether and USDC are kind of the main ones there. And they're more inclined to want to be able to transact. The issue, however, with those markets is that the regulation, and Nigeria has made some changes recently that hopefully will um, enable them to progress forward, but the governments aren't necessarily pro-crypto yet. And so you've got this tension between the people who have a, you know, should we say, a distrust of government and you know, printing more money, and also the inflationary issues that are happening there. Um, and then these, these governments that want to obviously participate in the digital asset space, um, and I think there's been a bit of resistance, but, but that will start to change, and I think they will start to have regulation that will enable payments. And, and that's one of the challenges we have is, you know, we, we need to operate in this kind of regulated world and, you know, meet the, whatever the, the law requirements are along with the mascara requirements. And then you've got this decentralized world. We've got these consumers who can do things in a generally unregulated, uh, anonymous kind of way. And how do you bring the two two together? And I think we're starting to to see that. Um, but yeah, I think you'll see a bunch of stuff in, in, in Africa, especially as far as using crypto for, for payments, for sure. And cross-border, like Visa and MasterCard have these products, Visa Direct and MasterCard Send, that basically enable you to send crypto to any Visa or MasterCard in the world in a cross-border way. So this is um, cross-border transfers in under a few minutes. Um, you're talking cents per transaction, compare that to like a Western Union or a rare money or you know, any of those type of, of options. It's significantly more efficient and, and cheaper. Um, and I think you'll see a lot more of that as well, particularly when it comes to remittances. So crypto to just, card Just out of curiosity, Jerome, if I may, Mitchell, just, just you know, one of the things that we're trying to aggregate is a lot of pricing data, right? And so we're trying to identify how consumers are spending their money on an anonymous basis so that we can then identify what a household expenditure looks like and, and breaks down. Credit cards have had the huge advantage that they have 5,000 different merchant categories. Can you get that actually in a, in a crypto payment? Can you see what merchants done? Do you see the product items that have been purchased? Or is it just the transaction value and the coin it's actually used? Yeah, look, so, I mean, I've been in payments for a very long time. And there's something that's going on at a macro level now that um, you should be aware of. So payments at the moment are similar to, say, fax machines or the old telephone systems when the Nokia kind of came out or when we used to, you know, do the dial tone at, at home. So before pre-iPhone, pre shall we say, 
they're, they're electronic, but they're very analog and, and they're very limited in the data that you can send. So you're talking kind of bits of data as opposed to bytes or megabytes, big, big, big payloads. And in the credit card system today, you get a credit card number and expiry date. Maybe with some transactions like airlines, you might get a order ID or something like that, you know, some leg information on, on, the, on the flights, but that's generally secondary process and the networks don't really support that. What we're starting to see now is these new standards um, and payments, one's called MPOC, one's called SPOC, but essentially we don't need a specialist hardware device, a payment terminal. The point of sale can become also the payment terminal. And this is Android is going to lead this kind of charge. And we're going to go from these analog payments to data payments. So you talk about skew data and MasterCard definitely kind of saying you are what you buy. And so that data you're talking about, that really rich data is GS1 classified skew data. And that will come straight from the point of sale system. And you should be able to do that using, um, you know, uh, was it homomorphic encryption. So you can preserve people's privacy, zero knowledge proofs. There's like this beautiful stuff happening now where people can have privacy and transparency at the same time. And that historically hasn't been impossible and you'll be able to analyze all the data without you know turning people in, in, into the product but it's probably five to ten years away that we'd sort of transition from these nokia phones to these iphones for this analog to digital evolution of, of payments but that that's happening right now um on uh, on the ground here very interesting very cool um we are blazing through time i i, I truly wish we could have triple the time because i could talk about this all day uh, but let's 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 uh, let's sort of ha ha uh, give give a, a thought each about uh, what I was going to have sort of the sign off thing. What is your ideal version uh, of of regulation? What would you like to see come down the pipes? And you can say, yes, this is a fair regular type of like a uh, regulation. And does that just look like, you know, like what Gary Gensler he just wants to apply 100 year old securities laws? Or do we want to go full Mad Max and Cap Utopia and just like no rules just right kind of thing. And let's start with Paul. So when it comes to the regulating DeFi and all these technologies we're working on, I personally, I'm in favor of minimum regulation, but that's not to be confused with like a lack of consumer protection. I think um, you want like developers to be able to innovate and create all the different tools and techniques and products and services that people are gonna wanna use. Um, the goal is to prevent fraud, basically. You don't want people getting ripped off because that's that like damages the entire industry. So whatever, I mean, it's a difficult balance to strike. It, I don't think complete Mad Max anarchy is the right answer. So like very light touch, minimal regulation um, is desirable to the point where you can kind of maximize innovation and access for everyone. Very cool, very cool. Jerome? I think when you're innovating and pioneering, um, you know, innovation always plays catch up. And so I think there's, for me at least, I've always had the expectation that whatever the minimum kind of standards are now, that, well, whatever the standards are now for the existing products, that's the minimum standard. So you typically have regulation in place or standards in place. You know, there might be PCI for payment cards or ISO 27001, SOC2, um, you know, AML, CTF, like, there are things out there already, and I think you've got to take that as your baseline. But I think as business owners and founders and innovators, you need to take the high ground and self-regulate, you know, and you need to really <laughs> kind of um, yeah, take the existing as a minimum standard. And then obviously you want to, you know, regulation and user experience are typically a, a bit of a tension, right? You can have a great user experience with frictionless onboarding, one-click onboarding, 
um, but it's not going to be compliant with the law. So you, you just need to balance these things. But I think self-regulation when you're innovating and then working closely with regulators and, and, and key markets, uh, you know, to play a bit of catch up is, is probably the way to go. Very good point. I, I always I always discount the uh, the 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 AML, the importance of AML, because I like I feel I feel Stefan and I are sort of on the same. Uh, we're, we're on the same, you know, spiky motorcycle in the Mad Max world. But, uh, you know, but there are some there are some common sense things. And Stefan. Yeah, I mean, I just look if you look back it over in, in history a little bit. Right. I mean, look at the dot com boom and look at that innovation you know, boom and thrust it gave to the world and, and, and what it opened up in terms of new jobs, new companies, new wealth, right? It was the only time in this dot-com boom around the 2000s when governments actually generated a surplus in income, right? I mean, so ultimately, the tax income was greater than the spending. Wow, you know, how do we get back to those days, right? We've got a lot of innovation taking place right now. We've got AI, we've got crypto, we've got, you know, uh, now we've got metaverse, uh, we've got, um, you know, clean tech, you know, biotech, you know, all of these new techs that are really, how do we let them rip? And by regulating them and already putting boundaries, an entrepreneur's job is already really hard. We're, we've got so many fronts to tackle. We got to fundraise. We got to get people. We got to convince people that this is a vision. We got to sell a vision. We're boiling a blue ocean in front of us, right? All of those activities that we do as entrepreneurs on a day to day basis. Now you want to layer on top a whole new suite of regulations. We need more lawyers to get through and navigate these regulations and tell us how to be compliant, to slow us down and ask the competition permission to disrupt their businesses. I just think that is not going to help further uh, society, nor alone going to create hope and new generations and new ways to offset the debt that has been accumulated uh, for future generations. So the best way to do, and I thought Vivek had a very good sample, he sort of said, you know, code should be free speech. So treat code like free speech. Um, you know, and do not impair and foster self-hosted wallets. So allow for non-self-custody of your wallets. And then ultimately allow innovation to happen around the code, right? And, and so to me, that was really important. And then slam down on anybody that really is a bad actor. But the beauty around crypto is you can trace all of that. We found the people that hacked Bitfinex a long time ago. We catch all of the bad actors. You can follow them. They need to go somewhere to convert whatever currency they hack somewhere rather. It may take five years. It may take seven years. But now the sleuths are far greater and we have a lot better insight into blockchain and following the different chains and where the money goes. And if we spend the time to do so for the 2% bad actors that are out there, that's a far better and more efficient use of capital to hinder and stop bad actors from continuing, you know, from disrupting a great new system that can really drive systemic change. Very good point. And uh, just a, an, 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 an interesting similar thing to note on that is just the fact that, you know, amongst all the you know the crime and the bad things that happen in the world, the uh, the money laundering, the uh, Bitcoin makes up you know a tenth of a percent of that volume, and the rest of it is pretty much all good old fashioned USD. Uh, so we'll leave it at that, and uh, because we we were already over time, I knew we were going it.
But uh, thank you guys so much. I, I was so glad I got to host this. This has been a Red Beard Ventures production.